Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. What happens when someone is told a lie from childhood onward, something that just transforms the way they see everything and not just about themselves, but a lie about their whole people and a lie about their entire racial identity? What happens when this lie turns into abusive, oppressive, or traumatic and violent acts? How does that affect people? That's what we're going to be talking about today with uh, Sheila Wise Rowe. She is going to help us understand, identify, and hopefully kind of move through racial trauma. As always, this is the Embodied Faith Podcast, and I'm Jeff Holzglaub. We're seeking to integrate kind of the best of neuroscience and psychology and spiritual formation and our walk of faith. And we're brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which seeks to grow everyday faith. So Sheila has over 25 years of experience as a Christian counselor, spiritual director, educator, writer, and speaker, and she is active in local healing and reconciliation ministries, and she's written a book called uh, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience, and she just released another book uh, called Young, Gifted, and Black, A Journey of Lament and Celebration. Sheila, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad that you could uh, jump on with us and uh, take a little time out of your morning. So could you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? How did you get into the, kind of this calling to be a, either a counselor, a spiritual director, or uh, this uh, kind of healing and reconciliation minister? What was, you know, I know you covered that a little bit in your books, uh, but what is kind of that journey for you in a real practical sense? Yeah, I, um, I actually went into college wanting to go to medical school. And um, it was in college that I really had a sense of, I was doing internships and really discovered that what I wanted to do really was, it was about healing, but it was more emotional healing. And so that started me on a journey of working in different settings, secular settings and Christian settings, um, and working with a wide population, kids, adults, couples, families. So I for many years, I uh, was a licensed marriage and family therapist and mm. also a counselor and um, started a Christian counseling program out of my church. And um, so a lot of what I did back in the day, there really wasn't um, programs. And so um, it really was learning as I went, um, mm. gaining insights um, through some of what was available in Christian circles, but also um, secular um, psychology and really, you know, playing, wrestling with how to integrate the two of those things. Mm, mm, that's great. And then you started like reconciliation ministries. Is that reconciliation between families or was that more of kind of the racial reconciliation or kind of socioeconomic re reconciliation uh, more broadly? You know what? I, a lot of it was working individually with individuals and couples. And what I saw was that for a lot of people of color, not just black Black folk, but others that 
there were issues that were coming up around race and identity uh, that were a part of their struggle. It wasn't just emotional struggles, but mm. um, it was how racism had affected them emotionally as well. And so that came into the work that I did with, with people. Mm. So you saw this common theme that's not just kind of your yeah. marriage or something. It's kind of these other larger absolutely factors. And then over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, there's been this like larger conversation about trauma yes. and then racial trauma. So could you, uh, and I know that's what you do uh, a lot of right now. So could you define trauma? Uh, how do you think of trauma? Uh, and then we'll kind of talk about racial trauma. Yeah. I, you know, trauma in general, if we all experience trauma, it doesn't matter who we are to um, a certain degree. And there's often conversations about big T trauma and little T trauma and like big T traumas being these really catastrophic traumatic events, like a a major car accident, a death, uh, that Mm. kind of thing. And then smaller traumas that are troubling yet not life-threatening and how when I think about how do we navigate that there's commonalities uh, when we don't. Uh, you often see symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Um, and that a lot of that came from the, those who served in the military coming back from war. Um, and But what we're seeing is that with just the more generalized kind of trauma, we're seeing some of those symptoms. And specifically with racial trauma, uh, what we were seeing it was that it wasn't even just the PTSD kinds of symptoms, but uh, because of these big things, there were these little things that were happening also um, on a daily basis almost. And how research has really shown that those little T traumas like accumulate over time and that uh, just the number of little T traumas can have a, a big, as big an impact as the, a big one. And so um, there have been lots of conversations around whether it's why is someone upset about microaggressions? What's the big deal about them? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet this lack of awareness that, you know, when someone is pulled over, that was not the first time they were pulled over mm-hmm. by law enforcement. In many cases and in many of the high profile um, deaths that we've seen, the people were pulled over hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And so that does something to a person in terms of how they navigate through life. What are their, their views about law enforcement? Um, and it does something to the body as well as the mind. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes like for trauma, we, we often think of like a catastrophic event or you're sent off to war, which is one context and there's horrible things happening. You come back home and there's a different context and then you don't know how to kind of function. Um, But what you're saying, and I think a lot of trauma research is now becoming more aware of is, well, it's not just like, like, you know, that, that car accident or, you know, uh, you know, the shooting, you know, or like that one shooting or something, but it's, it's a lot of chronic kind of traumatic events that kind of compound and build and things like that. Um, so what are some of those, um, kind of experiences or what, what are those compounding kind of, you said little T traumatic events that really, um, kind of affect things in like, in a, in a racist kind of way. Um, what are the markers of those things or the symptoms? Yeah. You know, I think that you have to take 
race, racial trauma is coming from a place and it's coming from, uh, from experiences. And some of those experiences are historical. Um, and so in our families of origin, if we look back, we, we can trace uh, where family members have experienced, whether it was during Jim Crow, the enslavement of our ancestors, all of those you think, well, that happened a long time ago. But what happens is that we, we know those stories. We, sometimes we hear those stories in our families. Um, we, uh, we know them because there's studies like epigenetics, which looks at how you know, it may even affect the DNA without you know, changing the structure of it, but there's a weakening of that. And so we, it's not just interpersonal. So we're familiar with that. We're familiar with one person being racist with another. But it's, it's more than that. It's systemic. And whether people want to believe that or not, uh, the research, the data, everything is there. It is systemic. Um, and it wasn't just that I've had one person say, well, since the 1960s, everything has been fine. That's not true. And so we're looking at how, you know, there, there are ways in which, whether it's educationally, whether it's um, in medicine, um, where people live, how they live, what are the services they receive. Systemic racism is alive and well. Um, we see it in public space and, and like who's allowed, whether it's overtly allowed or passively kind of allowed to be in certain spaces or not. Um, we're seeing it with how some of the monuments that came down in 2020 particularly. And there was a reason for that because those monuments were basically communicating a message about who is in charge, who is in control, and whether it's in the South and it was the Confederacy and you're seeing monuments everywhere. It's like, it's an honoring of, of a time and an era and a people way back then who basically subjugated an entire population. So um, those kind of meta communications are a part of it. Uh, environmentally, like where, where is the dump at? You know, yeah. where is the you know, the bad, the water issues, whether it's Flint or Michigan or wherever. Um, and then issues around white privilege where, um, you know, you're like, well, how would I have white privilege? Well, it really is one of, if, and I always say to people that uh, there's a way in which there are just assumptions. There are assumptions that this, this movie or this book or whatever that, that it is white, and then everybody else, people of color, we've got to locate ourselves in that story. It's it because that is the center. Mm. Um, we don't get our stories told, and we're seeing more of the stories being told, and that is great. It's wonderful because more than you know uh, than the people of color, we're seeing more and more white people who are like, "Wow, I I'm I'm getting something from this as well. I'm learning something about a different culture, but it's also speaking to me and my situation." And so that brings us all together in terms of we all have a story to share um, and we can learn from one another without one having to kind of figure out and locate themselves. So those are just a few in terms of racism and the racial trauma of that, as I said, it, it trickles down historically, personally. We also have vicarious trauma. Okay, uh, good. I was just about to ask know. about that. Um, what, because that really stuck out to me. What is... Because a lot of times, like you said, we think of racism as maybe like a personal affront that yeah. happens to an individual person, you know, physically assaulted. Uh, but you're kind of bringing up these, well, you know, there's 
there's literature, there's statues, there's access or denial to space. So what, what does vicarious racism mean? Yeah, so it's, you know, vicarious trauma and vicarious racism as well. Um, and I think that people don't understand that for, I'm going to speak as a black woman, for me to watch some of what I saw in 2020, 2021, and also throughout my life, it may not directly be about me, but I feel it. I experience that because I think this could be my husband or brother or my son. Mm-hmm. Um, this could be my daughter. And so I am feeling that viscerally. Um, vicarious trauma can, you know, it, it's not necessarily that it happened to me again. But for instance, when Michael Brown was killed and he laid in the street for four hours, um, they said that over 200 households had direct view of this black kid, guy, laying in the street, dead, and no one attending to him, just like he was roadkill, and and how horrific that was for them, not just for his parents, but for those who are watching that, it was, that could be me, that could Mm. be my child. Mm. And so every time that there's an incident that happens, um, many of us are experiencing that trauma um, and and not knowing what do we do with that. So it's that experience of, well, that could have been me or that could have been my son. That could have been my husband that just, and then your whole body, you know, as we're learning your, your mind and your bodies then moves through different reactions. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, and then that creates chronic stress and chronic uh, trauma and other things that we all know leads to uh, increased um, possibility of disease and sickness Absolutely. because your, your physical uh, resources are not being used to kind of monitor the wellness of your body and your emotional state. It's actually being kind of pulled out of you and sucked out of you because of these kind of vicarious emotional responses that either uh, could have happened to you or or has happened to you. And then you're kind of remembering and it causes all these kind of long-term problems. And and you kind of, you go through in your book, uh, Healing Racial Trauma, you go through kind of some of these experiences. Uh, And the first one you talk about is just fatigue. Like there's a, like a, and this kind of goes back to the connection between mind and brain and, and relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of fatigue response? What are the different aspects of that? Yeah. Well, one of the things that happens physically is that there's a what they call weathering. And so there's a way in which over time it just wears us down on multiple levels. And so we end up seeing premature aging. We see diseases, as you referenced. Um, but there's a weariness that is physical and there's a weariness that's emotional and that um, we can get exhausted and are exhausted uh, at the just the struggle. And it feels in many ways like two steps forward, one step back. Um, in some ways in 2020 with the protest and the arrest, and it felt like, wow, we're moving forward. And then we saw in 2020 later and going into this year, the backlash. Mm-hmm. And so under the cover of CRT, it was like, no, we can't talk about anything. We don't want to talk about the past. We don't want to. And, and it's exhausting to, as a person of color, to feel that you're ma- there looks like there's movement. And then it's, we're, we're back to where we were before. Mm-hmm. And that level of exhaustion really affects, like, how do we navigate through life? How do we navigate in predominantly white spaces and in churches as well. Um, is this a place where I really feel welcomed, where I feel supported? And um, and so we 
we question that and, and we're absolutely exhausted, mm. which affects how, how do we raise our children. It affects our marriages, um, our communities, and it kind of bleeds everywhere. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, it's something that if we're not paying attention, we might not see that that's what that is. That given you throw the pandemic on top of that, you right. know, and um, and you see how disproportionately it's affected communities of color. It's just another level of, of assault. And it just is it's exhausting. So how um, you speak a little bit in your book about how God has ministered to you in the midst of that exhaustion or yeah. some of the practices that you've adopted or kind of helped others to to kind of work through that exhaustion. Could you just kind of speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Well, one of the, the very first thing is really acknowledging that that is an issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, we are so used to just grinding, you know, we're going to just pushing through, pushing through in, in whatever way that we can. Um, and so to be able to, to stop and to recognize that, I'm, I've had more than one person who's read the book and they were like, wow, this explains what's been going on for me. And, um, and so it's shedding light on what has happened and taking that time to just listen. And it's listening and it can be with a therapist, it can be with a pastor or even a friend. But being able to share your whole story is, is really the first step in, in moving forward in that. There are some really practical things um, that we can do. One is, is, again, working with someone and even on your own. Um, I recommend people do a genogram and we're looking at their family of origin and like what are the things that may have passed down um, generationally. Uh, and, and it doesn't, not just the negative stuff, but the positive stuff as well. Mm. But, so having that broader picture of what has occurred. Um, and then the other piece is really about having a self-care plan. It's a, it's a plan for how are you going to get healthy, stay healthy. And counseling is a part of it. But then how is you're getting, releasing that stress from your body? Because part of racial trauma is that we hold it in and, and that's when that weathering occurs. Um, and that's where the damage happens. And so there are real practical things uh, whether it's movement, it's dance, um, how are we breathing? Um, mm. We tend to hold our breath and kind of, you know, grit our teeth. And yet, you know, let it re- releasing that and really inviting the Lord to meet us in that place where we're experiencing um, that tension and that pain. And so I'm a big proponent of listening prayer and just whether it's alone or with others, and, and really not just having a one-way conversation, um, mm-hmm. but a two-way conversation with God um, about what it is that you're experiencing, how lament factors in. And uh, King David, you know, he was an expert at that, of really being brutally honest with God about not just what was happening to him, but also quest- questioning God. Like God mm-hmm. is big enough to handle our questions. And so as we're, you know, in this place of being really weary, of just asking, you know, how long, Lord? I mean, David says that uh, multiple times in the Psalms, and so um, being being able to to do that, of being intentional about uh, what what do I want uh, for my life and for my children and for 
the next generation and how do I contribute towards that? Even though it may feel like one step forward, two steps back, how do I continue to go forward and the Lord strengthening us to continue to keep moving? Um, So there's just a few, there's many more. No, that's great. So I heard, um, you know, community, you know, find a sustainable plan. Um, Don't neglect self-care. And then the spiritual practices of centering prayer, healing prayer, and things like that uh, as a way of admitting to and then kind of sustaining through the fatigue. You mentioned, you know, the wear and tear, the weathering of holding things in. And that was your Mm -hmm. kind of your second point, which really struck out to me, um, which is the idea of silence and how um, silence becomes, um, for those who have been traumatized, it's a way of of coping with silence or of coping with trauma in one sense, but then it's also a way of, of passing down that pain to the next generation. Mm-hmm. And so the, that you kind of mentioned, I wrote in the side uh, of one of the pages that, you know, one generation silence becomes um, deafening to the next generation. Absolutely. Um, and so could you just kind of talk about those, the trauma and the silence and how that kind of all works together? Yeah. I, you know, oftentimes when trauma happens, uh, we can, we don't have the we don't have the tools to actually deal with it, and particularly if it happened really early on. And so, I want to just say that as a child, if we've experienced trauma, and I, I write about some of this in the book about my experience, traumatic experience being bust in Boston, and um, in the silence chapter, I talk about Nori, whose father was he, he's Japanese, and the family was interned, um, uh, and during. World War II. And so one of the things about silence is that we often don't. So Nori's father didn't have the words, didn't know how to um, deal with what he was experiencing, losing so much, losing his home, losing his community, being put on a train and sent to the middle of the U.S. In a, and placed in an internment camp. And so he shut down his voice. And in a similar way, I did that as well. And many of us that do do in that is because as children, that's all we know how to do. And it's and that's okay. We're trying to survive. But the reality is as we get older and we're we're now we now have more tools and more resources, the challenge is to begin to open up and to to speak about what happened then as well as what is happening now. Because when we don't, we end up seeing what I share about my own life and with Nori's life and how that silence affected his father physically, uh, emotionally, uh, leading to substances and an abusive um, way in which he dealt with his wife and children. And that's one of the consequences of not speaking out is that uh, it's going to come out. The trauma is going to speak in one way or another Mm -hmm. and it, it will come out. Um, so we have to be mindful of that. Um, two things I, I wanted to say that even now with the children that we've got to be intentional about giving them space to speak up about how they're feeling. Um, and, and so there, and, and are we shutting them down in any way? But the other is as an adult, where are you still silent? Where are you still holding on to something? And, and it may feel like, okay, you're in denial. And sometimes denial, you know, you can't force somebody out of denial. Um, you got to wait it out. And, you, and when you're ready, and, you know, and I want to just say that the Lord is with you in that process of mm. 
getting you ready um, to deal with the trauma, the denial. And then so then you can then regain your voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I felt for me when I you know, was reading that, that that would be uh, a helpful way to kind of cultivate compassion for other people, Absolutely. maybe for your own parents or for a partner who has trouble speaking about those things. Uh, because, um, you know, it's painful for you to know there's something wrong and you don't know how to help them, but there is a sense in which there's compassion. Well, they don't, they don't have the words they don't know, and you can kind of help them, you know, to do the work a little bit. But I also think what you just said, um, you know, the trauma will speak no matter what, that's just what is being spoken. And then what are the effects of those words? You know, is it going to cause, uh, healing eventually, or is there going to be more harm that gets passed on? And so I think that's a really important encouragement to um, have compassion for others, but then, you know, to also do that work uh, as best as you can. Yeah. You know what? I also want to just say that sometimes the, the trauma responses are, I've got to get bigger. I've got to get louder. I've got to be in control. And so Mm -hmm. for some white folk whose ancestors immigrated from really horrific situations who came here, that's what it was. It was about, I, I got to get bigger. I got to get stronger. I've got to not be in that place of weakness anymore. And so mm-hmm. it, it becomes really scary to say, you know what, we're going to honestly look at the past. We're going to look at what damage what, that was done by your ancestors. And, mm-hmm. um, and how do we stop perpetuating that now? When I think that for some people, it's a fear of vulnerability. It's a fear. And even if it's not a conscious one, of I'm going to be back in that place where I'm going to be vulnerable like I was back in the old country or my great-grandfather was. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can't do that and I'm not going to go there. And so I don't want to deal with history. Mm. Yeah. Well, this is a maybe a off topic a little bit, but if um, like we just had, you know, and I understand culture uh, is not monolithic, right? So people yeah. find different ways, right? But if you, if you, know, if you say, well, the white American culture, frontier culture, coming out of Europe, uh, trying to escape a bad situation or find something else, it put on all the postures of uh, dominance, of certainty, of, of being big, like you said, um, and things like that. Then it's, you know, and we could say, well, that was actually a trauma response to what they left. They had to be big to survive. And, you know, and that had all sorts of negative effects for people of color all throughout the continent and all the people we brought here to do the work. Um, and so to kind of deal with that trauma is actually to become smaller and to become more vulnerable. Uh, and that's its own kind of pain and uncertainty that's involved with that. But then for people, um, you know, people of color, you know, formerly enslaved, like they were made to be small. They were made to thought to be inconsequential. So they're actually, you know, traumatized that way. And their trauma therapy or response is to actually grow bigger, right? So we have these two cultures, you know, that are going different directions. And it's no wonder that we're not doing it very well. Um, and that it takes a lot of work because you know what though? Um, uh, I yeah. think I don't, that, did I mischaracterize? No, that? No, I was, no, that was no. just a brainstorm off the top of my head. So please no, correct. No, me. you're, you're absolutely correct. I think the issue then is that as believers, where are we going? We are really going to, to the center, which is Christ. That's where we should be going. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Right, right. You know, that's where we should be going. And the problem is that uh, I frankly feel that the church has decided to do something totally different. Yeah, yeah. And, no. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that maybe that could be a whole nother episode that we could uh, talk about. Um, but we can agree on the goal is to follow Jesus through this. Absolutely. So this absolutely. is uh, so. This next topic is one where people, I think, disagree. What does it mean to follow Jesus? As you speak about uh, rage and how rage is the result of uh, persis- persistent abuse and oppression, that those who don't have a voice or those whose voices are not being listened to, you know, the anger, which could maybe be a productive kind of emotion becomes rage, which, you know, maybe isn't. And so some people, you know, feel like, yeah, we need to harness the rage um, in the face of the injustice of racism as a good thing, as a way to kind of move forward. And then others, you know, usually, you know, you know my people, the white people, the leaders say, well, you know, rage is like a sin and we need to focus on forgiveness and, uh, you know, and both say, well, both of those things are following Jesus. And so we're kind of confused on what that is. So, so could you, could you speak, you, you did a really great job speaking about that in the book, but could you just kind of talk a little bit about that? Like the, the uses or abuses of rage and, yeah. um, how that fits with your journey? Well, you know what? I, I have to say that God meets us where we're at, Amen. So, you know, for, for some, for some folk, the huge travesties of justice are just horrific. And, and there's a, there's a justifiable anger about Mm -hmm. that. And, and, and I certainly have been in that place um, throughout my life. And the question is, what do you do with that anger? Um, It is something that if we actually, you know, that I use the, little met Psalms as part of that of David, like uh, David said some things. <laughs> He's like, smite them all, kill them, you know, um, right. kill their children. I, I mean, it's just like, Whoa, wow. Like, why did it, God say that this guy was like the apple of his eye? Really? Um, and it's because he honestly came to, to God exactly where he was mm. in his rage at times. Um, and he didn't, he didn't, although, there were moments where he did. <laughs> so in the case of Bathsheba, where he clearly sinned. Mm-hmm. Um, but the yes. one thing about him is that he did uh, go to the Lord, even if he was convicted um, uh, by the priest, even though uh, he, he tried to hide it initially. He eventually took that, um, that sin he, and, and, and the Psalms, taking his anger taking his disappointment at God, all of it to the Lord and saying, Lord, this, I'm giving this to you. What do you want me to do? And I think that's the question that we have to ask um, the Lord. What would you have me do? Not me think this is how I want to do it because obviously, you know, we're human and we think we know. And so we're just going to do what we want to do. But Lord, how do you want me to express that? What does it look like? Do I need to go out and, and protest today? Do I, you know, is it about my voting? Is it about my just caring for my neighbor? Is it um, serving in a community that's different for me? What is that? How do I harness that anger, as you mentioned? And I can only do my piece. Um, there's this analogy about the whole thing about eating. How do you eat an elephant? You know, um, and racism being this elephant in the room It's that, Everybody has to take a little piece. No one, no one person can eat an entire elephant. Right. So if we all have our, our piece, 
um, then we can start to dismantle it. And we have to have that perspective that what piece that I can um, contribute uh, as the Lord has led me, like, like that's my piece to contribute. And, and my anger, giving that to him and him saying, this is how I want you to deal with that. The problem with rage is that it can become toxic. Mm-hmm. It can stay in our bodies. It can, and, and the damage that I talked about before, it just is, it explodes. Um, mm. And so we've got to, we've got to attend to that anger. It can't, it's not going to be pretty. And I, and I'm saying this from experience personally, and as a clinician for close to 30 years, I've never seen anybody holding on to rage and anger. And I, and I understand people come in with that and and I am patient and working walking with people through that mm-hmm. but you can't think that you can hold on to that forever and it's going to do anything good it's not going to do anything good it isn't mm-hmm. not in your body yeah. and if you can harness it and have impact uh, out there in the world to make positive change yes um, as well as dealing with it in your in your own self mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, you're speaking of emotions, um, like anger at its best has a sense, uh, a twofold sense, which is um, ideally our relationship would be better than it is, but it's not. There's something wrong. There's something um, broken. There's injustice in our relationship. And now anger gives me the energy or gives us the energy to come up with new solutions and to overcome the obstacle to bring the relationship forward again. That's at its best what anger would be doing. And so we shouldn't be angry with ourselves for being angry as long as we're feeling the motion to find solutions and to overcome the obstacles. Yeah. Uh, one, so, one thing that I did share in the book was about the work of um, Dr. Bacharova. And she talks about this whole cycle of revenge hmm. that, and if we use our anger in that way, like my anger, I'm going to use this anger to get revenge it it what it does is it it actually gives the perpetrator excuses to say oh yeah this is why and then the perpetrator continues to heap on abuse and so at a certain point we have as believers um have to say okay lord we crying out to the lord we need intervention here mm-hmm. um and and there's a way in which i need to release people and i believe me have to do that regularly um into the Lord's care, but also, Lord, what do you what do you want me to do in terms of how to relate to them? Um, how do I bring justice? This is not about forgiveness. Is just like cheap grace, and oh, you can I'll forgive you, and you can continue on with your bad behavior. It's like right, no, right. and what you did was not okay. <laughs> um, but I I want to walk in a way that really. Um, is being led by the Holy Spirit in, in mm. terms of how do I deal with the what I see. Yeah, that's great. Well, you were being led by the Holy Spirit to write another book uh, to yeah. kind of the younger generation that you call, uh, and the book is called Young, Black, and Gifted, A Journey of Lament and Celebration. And you kind of, uh, just before we jumped on, you know, pressed uh, record, you said that this is kind of um, extending the work of your, your previous book. Could you kind of just talk a little bit about how those two, kind of these two books fit together and what your, your hope was yeah. for the second one? Yeah. So the, the title actually is Young, Gifted, and Black. 
A Journey of Lament and Celebration. <laughs> oh, I did. Sorry, I wrote it down wrong. Young, Gifted, and Black. There we go. Yes, Young, Gifted, and Black, A Journey of Lament and Celebration. And so um, one thing that I was seeing and that was coming out of the book, the book uh, Healing Racial Trauma, really focused on um, Black, Indigenous, other people of color. And uh, what I was seeing with young Black millennials and younger adults uh, was that there was a there was a certain demographic that um, within that who were high achievers and it wasn't just academically, it was in sports. It was, they were really pushing forward and there are ways in which um, they were at risk, um, but in, in not the traditional sense, but at risk in that they were often celebrated and yet um, no one was really seeing the cost that it took for them to get to where they are. Um, no one was seeing their private pain. Uh, as I mentioned to you um, earlier, it, you know, we started to see this uh, with Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and just these really high, like these high striving women who in the middle of everything just said, I, I can't do this anymore. I've got to attend to my, my mental health. Um, and, and in some ways they really modeled that, the need to really hold both of your life, like the ways in which you're celebrated, but also the ways in which you're dealing with lament. You're dealing with past, tra- you, you need to deal with it. You need to deal with past trauma as well. And um, and in life, we're, it's about moving through life holding both of those things. And, um, and so for, I've had a lot of responses. Um, interestingly, from people who were younger than wh- who I thought would be the target and even older um, as well as mm-hmm. millennials who were like, wow, like this is me right now. Or that was me when I was young. Cause I, I share different stories in every chapter of different people and their experiences and mm-hmm. people have located themselves at various points in their lives or they're raising children. And they're like, wow, this is really giving me a heads up in terms of my own child and what I need to be aware of. Um, and each chapter takes you through how this person dealt with a lot of issues, racism being another part of that. Mm. So if you overlay everything with um, the racism that these folk are experiencing. And so people are often shocked when someone, um, whether it's a, an Oprah Winfrey or something, she uh, you know, gets denied access into a shop. And you think, really? Uh, but yeah, uh, and... And in so many ways that um, they're having to deal with the issues that I talk about in healing racial trauma, but from this other place, you know, Mm. they're getting into the best colleges, they've got jobs, they're, uh, you know, in on sports team, or they have aspirations for that. And, and yet, they're having to deal with their past stuff from their families, and also racism. Mm. And, um, and so the book is really about that. It's about letting them know that they're seen, they're valued, they're loved, even beyond what it is that they do or say, and that they, they are loved and they don't have to be perfect. Um, and this is an, a time to, to take stock, but also to hold like their whole story, not just a part of their story. Mm, that's great. Well, it sounded like um, just thinking through kind of your other book that you're you're hoping to honor and to celebrate, you know, the next generation, but then also make sure that they they 
don't fall into the trap of the fatigue or the silence where, you know, where Absolutely. you're, you're where you're being, you know, you're accomplishing so much, but you know, maybe you're going to burn out with the fatigue and, and there's a silencing of a certain part of them that you're wanting to fend off. And that sounds, that just sounds great. That's a message, you know, for all of us coming out of trauma uh, or raising the next generation. Cause it seems like, you know, we have kids and it seems like the kids kind of learn the wrong lesson from the adults. Sometimes yeah. they learn how to be the opposite of them. And that's how I, I parented the opposite way that I was parented, you know, yeah. and those types yeah. of things. So, well, thank you so much for taking thank a little you. time to come on. And again, let me say it the proper way. So it's young, gifted and black, a journey to, of lament and celebration just Absolutely. published by InterVarsity press. Yes. Uh, and the book earlier that we were talking about was called healing racial trauma. This is Sheila wise row. Uh, Thank you so much for being on with us today. Thank you for having me.